0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. You know, I feel like we deal with dreams a lot here on the show. Dreams of going to places that you've never been to before, dreams of finding yourself in a new situation somewhere else in the world where you discover you're a different person than you realized you could be. And dreams of living in different places. We've been dealing with that a lot because of the pandemic. My next guest did that many years pre-pandemic, but he was able to reinvent himself in what I consider the most beautiful city on the planet, Paris. His name is Alexander Lebrano, and he has a fabulous memoir out right now about his journey. It's called My Place at the Table, A Recipe for a Delicious Life
1: in Paris.
0: Welcome, Alec, to the Frommer Travel Show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Pauline. Thank you.
0: So I think anybody who knew you as a young man probably wouldn't have known that you were going to become one of Paris's top food critics. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got there?
1: Well, one person who would find it very improbable, Pauline, was the the poor beleaguered French teacher I had in junior high school. She would be (laughs) astonished to discover that I lead my life in French these days, given my ineptitude as I came out the door learning this language. But my interest in food um, really goes back to, I think, most people who knew me, even when I was a bookish, shy kid in the suburbs of Connecticut. Um, I've always loved to eat. I come from a bipolar gastronomic background. My mother was from Boston, mm. and my father's family is from New Orleans. And I don't ask mm. you to, you don't have to guess which side of the family brought the gastronomic credentials to the table, although with, almost, <laughs> with all due respect, Boston is a very good food town now. But yes. I'm fascinated by food because it's um, it's a language like English, German, or French. You know, it's a language that we all speak Without having to study, it's the intentions of food are so innately understood. And it's a way to connect with where you are beyond the prism of language um, with, you know, deep emotion and sensuality. So um, I've I've always loved this particular language, even even since I was a little boy.
0: Well, yeah, you said that's very interesting. It is a language and we all speak languages with an accent when we're speaking in a different language. Do you think your roots uh, shaped the way you experienced French food? Because there is a lot of French history in the cuisine of New Orleans.
1: I, I think that the, there was a receptivity, perhaps a, a genetic receptivity, in my palate to to French cooking that that certainly went back to the to New Orleans. But I also think that the you know, I, I basically had to learn a whole new way of eating when I moved to Paris over 30 years ago. It was a, because, you know, having a meal is not just about the food. It's also about the, the theater of the meal mm. itself, the manners, right. the, all of that stuff. And it was quite, quite, quite different then. I mean, pa- Paris is still a formal city, but it was even more formal when I got got here in 1986. Sure.
0: And let's just say you got there originally because you were hired to be covering menswear uh, for a major fashion magazine. So, so that's why I said at the beginning it might it was a, it wasn't a direct path uh,
1: that you took. It was the most. I think I have greater gifts as an uh, airplane engine mechanic than I did as a fashion writer. <laughs> I was living in London, actually, before I moved to Paris. I was working Mm. as a writer and and an editor on the Sunday supplement of one of the big London newspapers. And I got wind of the fact that this job was open in Paris. I knew nothing about menswear. And Fairchild Publications, which is based in New York City, it no longer exists, but it used to be down on East 12th Street, with the venerable Mr. Fairchild at the head of things. I had to Mm. go to New York to interview and when wow. I went in, um, <clears throat> he tested my French by saying, parlez-vous français? And I said, oui. And he said, OK, <laughs> that's good. And then uh, we went on and he said, you know, you, you went to Amherst College. You worked at book publishing companies in New York, Random House, Harper & Row. Um, I think you're just what I need. At the end of the uh, conversation, however, I panicked and I I felt, I've just it out. I said, Mr. Fairchild, I'd love to work for you, but I feel, I must be honest, I know absolutely nothing about menswear. And he said, I could tell that when you walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that was the square one, Pauline. Right, right. And the Fairchild office, you know, which was in the Rue Cambon right next to Chanel, right in the heart of the city. You know, it was a hive of, of you know, very, a very glamorous place to work, and it was they quite. Have different. to
0: change your wardrobe to work there.
1: Well, the, you know, I, my, I was, I was advised by friends in England to go to Harvey Nichols and buy a Giorgio Armani suit, which I wore the first day to work, which made me in that office where everybody wore sh- uh, sweatshirts and jeans a, fi- <laughs> a figure of hilarity. When I, think oh my it. goodness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. So, so you, you get from London to Paris, you're covering menswear and you're learning about the French. You're learning about the rituals surrounding dining, their formality. It, it, it's something, you know, I, I grew up on the road. I started traveling with my guidebook, writing parents when I was four months old. And whenever we went to France, France, our wardrobes changed. And and I was often left in the hotel room while my parents went out to dinner because, you know, this was the, you didn't bring children to dinner in those days, you know, at least at a restaurant or if, or they had to be a better behaved child than I was. What <laughs> What did you see the rules were and, and how have they changed over the years?
1: Well, the first, I think my breakthrough moment, Pauline, was when I was, you know, I had the advantage of living on an expense account for the first month. That's a big so
0: example, wow. Huge.
1: And that's when I was finally awoke to that advantage. And I thought, instead of having furtive little meals in the cafe around the corner on my way back to the hotel, I'd never eaten in a restaurant by myself before. It was not something oh. that m- most Americans, I mean, aside from maybe sitting at a counter, you know, at a luncheonette or at the Oyster Bar in Grand Central in New York. Sure. Um, I'd never walked into a restaurant and, and asked to be seated at a table. I just, it was not something that was common in, in those days. But there was this a breakthrough weekend, you know, it was a beautiful Indian summer weekend in Paris. And I thought to myself, stop being such a fool. So I bought, a, a, you know, an armload of guidebooks and I chose a restaurant and I called and made a reservation. It was a Saturday night and I arrived and I stood in the doorway for what seemed like an interminable period of time and um, was finally seated and instantly, you know, gasped that I would like a vodka tonic and was told, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. One does not drink cocktails before dinner. If you'd like something, you can have a glass of champagne, I was told. Uh, The French believe that hard liquor liquor pickles your palate before a good meal. Wow! Um, And so that was square one. And it went on from there. I was so lucky that night, however, because the waiter, I had spoke good English. He was patient with my French. And I learned that in a really great restaurant, the waiter is there almost like an architect, a gastronomic architect to help you build the experience of a blissful meal. Mm. That's exactly what he did with me that night. It was a restaurant that was on the Quai d'Orsay, and it was famous for mushrooms. It was fall, so there were lots of beautiful mushrooms on the menu. Um, and he designed the meal with me and sort of took me under his wing, and it was one of the most most ecstatic experiences I've ever had. Wow. You know, I'm crossing the Seine on the Pont Alexandre Toile, which I think is the most beautiful bridge in the world. Um, You know, I could, so I was floating back to the hotel. I was so happy. I mean, I suddenly thought to myself, so this is how I'm going to make Paris mine. I'm going to, I'm going to make this city mine through its restaurants and by learning French gastronomy.
0: Wow. And French food is held in very high esteem, obviously in foodie circles. It's considered one of the touchstone cuisines. And this is a massive question. Maybe it's too big to ask. But what do you think? I mean, you said he he gave you this meal that was transporting. What is it about French cuisine that transports when when done well? How how does it differ than other great world cuisines? And I'm sorry if that's too big a question.
1: No, not at all. I think that I think that um, I think that what I one of the things I had to learn is to appreciate the subtlety of French cooking because the real genius of French cooking is found in the sauces, which are real works of art because, you know, you start with with stock, you know, deeply boiled bone essence, uh, and then you build the sauce depending on what it is you're serving and with enormous subtlety and... Mm. Um, You know, little pinches of spice that actually make a, a big difference in the final taste. It's incredibly subtle and incredibly refined, uh, helped by the fact that, you know, uh, France, I do believe, among the major Western countries, has the most extraordinary produce in the world because it has the best, really, truly, of everything. I mean, whether it's, you know, chicken with the poulet de bresse uh, from near the, you know, the chicken with the, uh, the blue feet from outside of Lyon. Mm-hmm. Um, the world's best fish from Atlantic, English Channel, and Mediterranean seaports. The French have a gastronomic literacy that's extraordinary. When they sit down at the table, they know where things are from. They know sure. what's the reason. And the exigence of the French uh, g- uh, gastronomic education, how chefs are formed, is military in its precision. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in restaurant kitchens through the years um, it's a privilege to get behind that door and every time I do go behind the kitchen door, I come away just you know I'm amazed all over again by the work that goes into to creating these dishes and I think in a large n- noisy world today we've moved toward a preference possibly for big large legible flavors
0: huh. yeah
1: you know, sour hot um, sure. you know, hot as and pepper so, a lot of people, French cooking is a little lost on on a lot of people. It takes it takes some time to understand why just something even as simple as a good green salad made with beautiful olive dressing right. and a nice aged vinegar can be a beautiful thing to eat. Uh, it, it took, and this is what I've spent the last thirty years learning, and hopefully we'll spend another thirty years enjoying.
0: You talk about the military precision in the kitchens. And as you were saying that, I I suddenly realized, you know, in the United States now, probably one of the biggest trends in restaurant design has been open kitchens. So you can watch the chefs work. But you rarely see that in France, at least at the high end restaurants. Am am I right about that?
1: Um, Most of, you know, when you look at the the, they're like an ant hole, you know, they're like ant nests, a big busy kitchen ah. in France. There is, there are a few restaurants, Joel Robuchon started, I um, mean, he, between sushi bars and American counter restaurants, Robuchon created his Atelier de Joël Robuchon, and there's one in New York, I think there's one in Las Vegas. He was inspired by the idea of, you know, uh, counter cooking and open kitchens. Right. Um, there are places like that. Yannick Alineau, another three-star chef in France, has just opened a wonderful restaurant um, where you sit at counters. And I, I, I think it's great. I mean, France France is not static. France is, no. it is continuously reinventing itself. I mean, the food scene in Paris is completely different from what it was when I arrived, with the result that we eat better in Paris today than we ever have before. Right, right. Absolutely. No, the food is extraordinary in Paris. So. How did you make the
0: jump from menswear to writing about food for a living?
1: Well, the, um, the first editorial meeting we had in that poisonous office, um, I was sort of staring out the window at a fat pigeon on the window ledge when I heard my name. And it was the bureau chief saying, Alec, do you have any ideas for stories? Which I was not expecting. And I've, you know, suddenly heard myself saying, well, I could do a story about the Androuet, And the Androuille was a very famous cheese store in the Rue d'Amsterdam, which I had visited with my parents the first time I went to France. And uh, Monsieur Androuille also created modern French cheese culture briefly. uh, Before that in France, people ate locally made cheeses uh, with the growth of the railroads in the 19th century. Monsieur Andre had cheeses being shipped from every corner of the country to his wow. cheese shop in Paris. Wow. Um, so he created a national cheese culture. And the cheeses were aged in cellars that were dug into the limestone, the live rock, under his cheese shop in, right in the heart of Paris. And I said, this is, this is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. So off I went to interview Monsieur Andre. And what I did, Pauline, I wrote all of my questions on little index cards using a French dictionary. And the first (laughs) thing I said when I came through the door to to Monsieur Andouet, who was wearing a blue, he looked like a Cistercian monk. He was a gentle, kind, very patient. Uh man. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm not going to ask you very, this is reading from an index card. I said, I'm not going to ask you very many questions because today I am your student. Please tell me about your (laughs) cheeses. This was an attempt <laughs> to, to avoid linguistic catastrophes. Right. So, um, he led me down into the, the you know, the musty cellars under the shop and was talking a thousand miles a, mi- a minute. I was there with a photographer. And the only wow. two words I understood were vash, which is cow, <laughs> and <laughs> which is goat. And then finally, we were in another dank corner. And he said, brebis, and something sort of tremored in my head. And I thought, brebis, sheep, oh, oh, use milk. And this was my breakthrough moment. Everything between those three words was, you know, completely lost to me um, because it was, you know, cheese cheese aging and cheese in general is quite technical. But one thing that has always stayed with me, and I love this idea, uh, he said cheese is one of the most hopeful of all foods because it it demonstrates human ingenuity. Cheese was invented to preserve milk, to oh. save milk at a time when we didn't have refrigeration. You know, we when they make great big wheels of cheese and you could age them, it converted a perishable fresh product into something that was there for you, you know, when you were hungry. At, sure. Later on.
0: Wow. Wow. Fascinating. So did you have a tape recorder with you? I mean, how did you turn what was gobbledygook into an article?
1: Well, uh, I, in the in the car, in the taxi on the way back to the office, and the, the photographer was, at one point I said, when we left the shop, I said to Monsieur Andouet, uh, I said to him that I thought his cheeses, I thought I was saying that his cheeses were masterpieces that deserved to be in the Louvre. But what I apparently said was that his cheeses should be smashed on the walls of the Louvre. <laughs> the um, <laughs> <a> photographer was <laughs> and, and gasping and shuffling his feet. Um, but um, in the taxi on the way back to the office, Patrick sort of briefly pretty much tried to summarize a lot of what Monsieur had um. said. He had also given me a book that he'd written, which, thank God, was written in English. And so I was able to sort of pull an article out of all of this. And that was where I started. I started with this this piece about French cheese, which they loved in New York. And so every time there was a, um, a food story or any possibility of doing, creating a food story, I would pounce on it because I found it infinitely more interesting than sitting there talking about
0: Lapels or cuffs,
1: trends and neckties. So you know, that's that's where it all began.
0: Wow. And you had the luck uh, to meet many of the big names in French cuisine and world cuisine, one of which I'm very jealous about, Julia Child. Can you tell us about meeting Julia Child?
1: Well, um, Julia Child, you know, I, um, I There was a, a wonderful American man in Paris who founded the cooking school at the Ritz named Gregory Usher. And Gregory had seen my piece on on the Androuet and other things I'd written about food. And finally, he called me one day, we didn't know each other, out of the clear blue and said, I've been enjoying reading your your writings in, on French food and your enthusiasm is, is, is wonderful, Alec. Um, a bunch of us are going to dinner, you know, next week my favorite bistro, which was Chez Georges in the Rue de Mai, which is spelled, it looks, my, it's pronounced Mai in French, but it's, it looks like mail in English. Mm-hmm. M-I-L, Chez Georges, it's still there. Please join us. And I said, I'd be delighted to. So I got there early and was ushered to a table in the back, you know, dim, very softly lit. And there was a, you know, a, a, a very tall lady sitting there Uh, having a glass of wine, lantern-jawed lady. And we started chatting. And she asked me where I was from and where I'd gone to school and what I was doing in Paris. And suddenly, with a shudder, I mean, literally, I mean, it's that every once in a while, you can't believe you could possibly have been that stupid. I thought to myself, I I was just about to say to her, and you, what do you do in life with a shuddering shock, I thought, mother of God, this is Julia Jobs sitting in (laughs) front of (laughs) me. And She was, she was pleasantly thorny. I mean, there was, it was Mm. sort of like she, she liked to duel a little bit. And she said, you know, so what are you going to do with yourself in Paris? And I confided in her that I hope to become a food writer, uh, which interested her. And at the end of the meal, when we said goodnight to to each other in the street, when we all, you know, we were six at the table that night. And she said, your enthusiasm over the bearnaise sauce means. She said, I I think that's a very good sign, Alexander. I think you'll you'll come along just fine, she said. (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) Wow. Well, that's that's almost like getting a blessing from the Pope in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in your book... You include as a bonus your little black book, which is your favorite restaurants. Can I ask you what is your favorite cheapest restaurant in Paris? And also, how many of the places that you covered will will they be coming back? In New York City, it's been a bloodbath with so many restaurants going out of business. Will it be the same for Paris, or are Paris restaurants going to do better?
1: um, The ones that you know. Mercifully, Paris is, was, has been very, very badly affected by the, uh, by the pandemic as well. Happily, to my knowledge, all 30 of the, the restaurants, I chose 30 because I thought, you know, most people stay at, at the longest in Paris a week. So that gives you, you know, uh, two meals a day to, uh, times two um, sure. with a variety, of different, a variety of different possibilities and price points and neighborhoods and everything else. And so far, so good. I think that they're all still there. A lot of restaurants have closed, and I think that of the restaurants that have closed, unfortunately, are ones where young chefs had just hung out their shingles and uh-huh. had the terrible misfortune of, mm-hmm. you know, t- doing that just at the moment that right. uh, you know. And we in Paris, I remember the last meal that I had in Paris before. Uh, before the first lockdown and you know we knew that this thing was sort of creeping across the steps of Russia to, to Europe. And um you know, the owner of the restaurant where it's from, one of my favorite bistros, which is near uh where I live in the ninth arrondissement in the heart of Paris, um, is called Le Bon Georges. And uh, I was discussing with Benoit, the, the owner, and he said business is off already 50 to 60%. People are frightened wow. and you know, more people are not going out. That restaurant is still there. That's one Good. of my all-time favorite bistros. It's moderately priced for Paris. It has a spectacular wine list. And uh, Benoit himself speaks perfect English for those who, who are intimidated, understandably intimidated by French, as do most of the stuff there for that matter. The Benoit spoke perfect English because the first time I ever went there, he spoke to me and a friend who were having dinner in English. He overheard us. And um, I said to him, your English is perfect. Why do you speak so, so well? And he said, I used to work for the Campbell's Soup Company.
2: Oh, wow. We, you
1: know, we looked at him and he said, yes, um, Campbell's has just bought the biggest soup maker in France. And I was huh. the, lia- the liaison. And he said it was an interesting experience, but I will not miss going to what he called the Camden, Camden New Jersey,
2: <laughs> which is where
1: they're located. And so he gave up The Camden and um, opened opened this delightful bistro in the heart of Paris, which is again called Le Bon George.
0: Le Bon George, the good George. Who right. was George? Do you know? Uh,
1: I, I think there's so many Georges in, in, in France. You know. <laughs> and they're all
0: good. They're all good. <laughs> well, it's been a delight speaking with you once again. Alec is the author of a wonderful new memoir. It's called My Place at the Table, A Recipe for a Delicious Life in Paris. Thank you so much, Alec, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show.
1: My pleasure, Pauline. Thank you.
0: continue today's culinary theme with our next guest she is lady hubbard and she wrote the most fascinating article for oxford american it's called how the sauce is made welcome lady thank you so much for appearing on the fromer travel show oh thank you it's nice to be here so which sauce are we discussing uh well the the
3: essay was about Tabasco sauce specifically.
0: Yeah. And it was so interesting because that's such a, a, a you, everybody has it in their cupboards. Right. And I had never, ever thought about where it came from before. And yet in digging up its history, you uncover so many strands of both American history and culinary history and microbiology. So tell us first, where does Tabasco come from?
3: Well, Tabasco sauce is made in uh, Avery Island, Louisiana. That's where the Tabasco company was founded. And uh, it's still made from there to this day. Yet,
0: not all the ingredients come from there anymore, right? Right
3: well they say from what I've read and what they say that yes the seeds are cultivated on Avery Island but that they you know they have to produce so much sauce at this point because it's so popular that right. they're grown they're farmed and harvested they're exported to various locations in Latin America and then brought back to Avery Island once they so let's the let's chill. unpack what the ingredients are so you have peppers and what else it's the tabasco chilies vinegar and
0: salt and that's it and that's it mm-hmm. and yet to make the the, to, the the there's a lot of fermentation that that goes into this right yeah
3: yeah well the the tabasco is aged in um oak barrels for a period of, of three years, I think on average. Ouch. And um, yeah, it's pretty, it is a, it's a very fascinating story for a lot of reasons, the story of Tabasco sauce. But um, Avery Island is not actually an island. It is a, um, a natural salt dome. And so mm-hmm. the salt that's, uh, and because that's a key ingredient in the hot sauce, sure. um, it's like a perfect place for it to be made. I was really interested in the fact that hot sauce is made from three. All of its ingredients are actually preservatives. Chilies are preservatives. Vinegar is a preservative, and salt, which has long been highly valued because it is a preservative as well.
0: Yeah, and that that led to somewhat of a dark history for this sauce. I mean, it's still in the family that first invented it. Can you can you talk a little bit about the family history and why? Preser- creating a sauce that was a preservative was so important to them? Um, well, from what I understand,
3: uh, it, on the island, there was a, um, I'm calling it an island, but there, there was a <laughs> sugar plantation before the Civil War. And then the um, it was recognized as valuable, the area, because of the salt. And so it was mined for salt during the Civil War. So it was a target and I think the plantation and many of the buildings were um, destroyed because it was so important to the Confederate Army as a source for salt. And then the family that had fled—my understanding that the family had fled uh, Louisiana during the Civil War and went to Texas. And then when they returned, everything was in ruined um, because of the damage done during the uh, war. And so, I think they were destitute at that point. And so, bottling and selling uh, Tabasco sauce was, was more a matter of sort of necessity, sure. economic survival. Yeah.
0: Wasn't there a story about uh, one of the owners getting a handful of seeds for the chilies from Mexico and having planted some of them and come back after the Civil War and finding them growing wild everywhere? Or is that apocryphal?
3: I don't know if it's. It sounds apocryphal to me. It's uh, that is the official <laughs> version of what happened. That um, the, the he received these seeds. He didn't know what they were. Or what they where they were from? From uh, a soldier that had been in Mexico and was told, "Oh, plant these. The you know the, the chilies taste really good." And he planted them right before they evacuated the island during uh-huh. the Civil War. And then when he came back, supposedly they were growing wild. But that is um, contested by by a lot of scholars. There was a, a man. This is one reason is there was a, a man named um, Mansoul White, who was also a planter. And he had bottled apparently and sold locally a sauce that he called Tabasco sauce oh. uh, in the 1850s. So, and apparently the families, they were both prominent Louisiana families and they knew each other. And so a lot of people think that, you know, Tabasco sauce was, I think he actually called his sauce Tabasco sauce as well. They they got a patent on their sauce, I believe in 1870, the Michelinies, the, 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 yes. So.
0: But White, the first man who made a Tabasco sauce, he made it uh, because he wanted to, keep his enslaved people healthy and he would give the sauce to other owners, you say in your article, right?
3: Right. Well, that's part of the, of the story. A lot of, a lot of things seem a bit apocryphal. I don't know exactly what it is. Chilies were long when they were cultivated, they were recognized as having medicinal properties in uh, Mexico, right? When they were first and Apparently, from the things I have read, it was certain slave owners during slavery gave slaves chilies because they believed that it kept them from getting ill. And several articles I've read said that um, Mansell White thought that the reason his slaves did not get ill during a cholera epidemic was because they consumed chilies and hot sauce. Yeah. So he. Ate- Apparently, he was considered something of a prolecystizer in terms of advocating the the importance of, of incorporating chilies into the diet among the white elite in Louisiana at the time. Right. So it was like a the first health fad or an early health huh. fad. Yeah. Um,
0: but it was Absolutely. very
3: much associated with with slave food and African-American cuisine from a very early point as well. Probably because of that.
0: Now, what is
3: it like to to tour the factory? It's a very interesting visit. The reason I went there was specifically because I wrote a. I was writing a novel about a man that invents a, a sauce that becomes very popular. And it's right around the same time that uh, Tabasco was becoming very popular in the United States. So I was very interested in sort of the, the stories behind brands that are ubiquitous in the same way that that Tabasco is for many people for a long time, at least to say Tabasco was hot sauce. Hot sauce was Tabasco. Um, that's how popular it was. Right. And so I that's I kind of made a pilgrimage to it because I was uh, I was just I wanted to see what it would feel like to be there. And and definitely they, there's a museum, there's a store and there's a very extensive tour where you can see exactly the process through which it's made. And um, apparently it is is still made largely in accordance with the uh, the the method that was uh, originally Started in terms of uh, how the the fermenting the uh, turning the, just the process has not sure. changed fundamentally. Isn't that I mean, amazing? So yeah. there's no,
0: it's not like new Coke. There's no new Tabasco. This no.
3: is no. well, the I mean, classic. now there are all these variations of it. But yeah, huh. no, the original process for Tabasco, the original Tabasco,
0: is still largely the same in many respects. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was an absolutely fascinating article. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromward Travel Show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. As I've said in the past, we hope you'll visit us at fromers.com. Where we actually have a lot of articles recently about food because food is such a, an important part of the travel experience. We have a really fun one about the cost of a, a cup of coffee around the world. Very interesting where it's most expensive, where they drink the most of it per capita. We're also always putting up new reviews. I'm going to be putting up some ones about New York City's restaurants, uh, because I just finished working on Frommer's New York City Day by Day book, which is a kind of a magazine-like travel guide. It has a lot of photos. You'll see, you'll see members of my family and some of my friends in there, because they ate out with me and I took photos of them with their food, but also lots of photos just of New York City's top sites. But the interesting thing is we lost a lot of restaurants, as I said in my interview with Alec here in New York City. But there have been some really great ones that have popped up. And that's the thing about New York City. The census just came out. And, you know, at the height of the pandemic, there had been all this talk about people fleeing New York and how it was going to lose population. And now the facts have come out. And actually, we've grown by 10%. After all that hand-wringing, after all the people saying that New York was on its last legs, it turns out we grew more than any other large city in the last decade. We have 800,000 new people. That's more than our, in most cities in the United States. So that's a long way of saying New York is not dead, which is why I was so thrilled. Well, one of the many reasons why I was so thrilled to be able to work on Fromer's New York City day by day and show once again what a great place this is to visit. We actually have a lot of books in process right now, which will be coming out soon. We've had to kind of start at square one and really rework them because the world has changed over the course of this pandemic. But once they are finished, once they are out for sale, we think they're going to be the most useful readable, interesting guidebooks on the market because we did go back to square one. So anyway, uh, that's enough of that. I thank you so much for listening. As I said before, and to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week.